Man, how about the smoke's gone? That's got to feel good, right? Does anybody else feel like this burden just lifted off of your, your shoulders? Well, we have some visitors in our midst. I won't call them out, but, uh, but I kind of will. They're from Texas, and you don't even know how you lucked out this morning. Uh, we've been probably eight, ten weeks of just smog and smoke, and, but the mountains are back. The fall is here, and uh, the drive from Legacy this morning is good is good. In fact, I, I bring you greetings from, uh, from that church uh, site this morning. And if you're visiting with us, uh, I, I want to just tell you a little bit about that. We are one church worshiping in two different locations, and it's all for one purpose. It's for building authentic community in Christ. And if you were to paint a picture of what that looks like, where we're headed, the vision and the direction that we're moving as a congregation, it looks like being a church to call home. And so I just want to tell you on behalf of the elders, we are so grateful that you are here this morning. And our prayer is that you would make yourself at home, whatever that looks like. And um, part of that is uh, me catching you up kind of on where we've been. We've been walking as a church through the gospel of John uh, for quite some time now, uh, 10 months, I believe. And this morning we turn to the Good Friday text, John 19. And uh, often, you know, this is, the, this is the chapter of the scriptures that we kind of save for that Good Friday service where we talk about Jesus' death and his, res or, and his uh, crucifixion, uh, all that came with that. And, uh, and so this morning might feel a little bit disjointed for you because the sun's out, the lights are up, and yet we're going to step into a Good Friday kind of posture as we think about what it means that Jesus uh, died for you and for me. So um, I want to invite you, we're going to read through the entire chapter. And I want to invite you to just, whatever it is that would help you to focus, maybe it's reading the words in the screen or in your Bibles or even closing your eyes. Um, and let's, let's think about what it means that Jesus uh, died for us as I read this under the cross. Will you open up your Bibles to John 19? And let's hear now the word of the Lord. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him. I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he's made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He enters his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out, sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and an Aramaic Gabbatha. That was the day of preparation of Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, behold your king. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. 
So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him. And with him, two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Aramaic in Latin and in Greek. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I've written, I've written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says they divided my garments among them and for my clothing, they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there so that they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. One of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of the bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they look on him whom they have pierced. So after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for the fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away the body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come by G to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the custom burial of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in that garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. So let me just ask you, as we just read through that story, what did you feel? Like if you were to close your eyes, and maybe you did, and you think about the picture of all the events of this chapter, what emotion does that evoke in you? Just walk through the scenes with me again. Jesus is flogged. Then he drags his cross. The mother follows behind. They hang him up like a piece of meat, barter for his clothes. And then just to be sure of his death, they pierce his side. 
You know, the words that we just read are arguably the most emotional, provocative words in all 66 books of the Bible. And it seems to me that how you feel about this story reveals something about your relationship with Christ. Just investigate this with me. What emotions do you feel? Is it anger? You know, when I read this chapter, I always wonder, how does a a human being treat someone like that? And this isn't just someone, this is Christ. I mean, who comes up with an idea for a, a crown of thorns? You know, that image is so symbolic in our faith, but really, like, think about it. It's sinister. They don't just beat him, they mock him. Or when I read this chapter, um, sometimes I feel sorrow to think of God's own people, right, chanting loudly over and over, lusting for this innocent man's death. It's a hard thing to fathom, right? And yet every time I open up the story, somewhere in the words comes the realization it was my sin that put him there too. So maybe we feel gratitude or or praise. You know, Jesus comes to earth fully human, fully God as this substitute for our failures, which means no matter what you've done, if you've put your faith in him, his love now covers you. That's crazy to think about. But let's be real. You know, I think for many of us, this story has been told so many times over and over that we've grown numb to it. You know, somehow maybe it's lost its impact on us. We've forgotten its significance. We might say that we've forgotten. What does that mean about our relationship with Christ? I want us to think about our emotions as we warm up our brains this morning because this story gives us one particular emotion that teaches a profound lesson about our faith. You might have missed it. In fact, this feeling was so powerful that this emotion led directly to Jesus' suffering and death. You catch what it was? It wasn't anger, it wasn't sorrow, it wasn't gratitude, and it certainly wasn't numbness. It was fear. Anyone feel afraid as we read this passage? It's kind of a curveball. Look at this at verse 7. The Jews said to Pilate, we have a law, and according to that law, Jesus ought to die because he had made himself manifest the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. Of all the emotions that come with this story, we we probably didn't think about that one. Pontius Pilate, the the one under whom Jesus suffered, the shot caller, the, the regulator, right, the tormentor, the man in charge, of all the emotions that come with this moment, he's scared. And not just afraid, he's increasingly so. The history books tell us Pontius Pilate was the fifth governor of Judea. Still to this day, you can find his name on a block of broken limestone over in Israel. In fact, here it is. There's coins stamped with his symbol scattered across the Holy Land. Pilate was a powerful, commanding presence wherever he went. But somehow, this domineering figure, God's word tells us, was terrified. That's an unexpected emotion, isn't it? You know, as a Roman official, Pilate was the definition of power. He was the antithesis of fear. Pilate was the judge, the jury, and the executioner. He not only carried out Roman law, he was the Roman law. Whatever Pilate said in Judea was the authoritative word of the people. But now the crowds bring Pilate, this man, this man named Jesus, and they charge him with blasphemy. He's claiming to be the son of God, they said. But this isn't a crime against Roman law. This had nothing to do with Caesar or Pilate. The Jewish leaders believed Jesus had broken God's law. 
See, under the customs of the Jewish faith, there's one God, right? And this, this Jesus of Nazareth, he claims to be him. And somehow, even after all the miracles and the signs and the, the wonders, all the teachings of Christ, the, the religious leaders have, have misplaced him. They've decided he's a liar. And they want him dead. But don't miss this, right? For some reason, Pilate is terrified. How is that? See, if you were of the Jewish persuasion, for Jesus to make this God claim was not only offensive, it was, it was a riot. Jesus and the Pharisees, we know by now, they had been going round and round and round for years. They couldn't stand this man. He was a threat to the establishment. He needed to go. But if you were a Roman, such as, as Pontius Pilate, right? Unlike your Jewish friends, this was a non-starter. See, Romans, they believed in many gods. In fact, it wasn't out of the norm if you were a Roman to believe in human gods. Romans worshipped all sorts of idols and deities, which puts Pilate in a really weird place, right? It's kind of a pickle. I mean, the crowd was literally outside his door screaming, crucify that man. But for Pilate, it doesn't add up. In fact, he told the crowds, he said, I see no guilt in this man. What is this about? Look at this in John 19, verse 9. Pilate entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? In other words, who are you? Give me something to go off here. The, the people hate you, so throw me a bone. I can help you out. But Jesus said nothing. Pilate can't believe it, right? Do you know that I have the authority to release you or kill you? But by now, it's start clear, right? Pilate knows something is very different about this man. This Jesus, he, he doesn't answer his questions. He doesn't submit to his leadership. And even though Christ is the one in shackles, he tells Pilate, you have no power over me. In fact, look at how Jesus said it. You will have no authority over me at all unless it was given to you from above. That's a boss move, isn't it? Pilate's in a quandary. It kind of reminds me of that C.S. Lewis quote. You've heard it many times before. Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. And Pilate's not sure. You know, again, when you read this story, let me ask you, what emotions come to mind? See, for Pilate, as it played out in real time, the overwhelming feeling that led his very next move was fear. And an increasing fear. An all-consuming fear. Monkey in the middle kind of fear. What's a man to do? If I have this Jesus executed, what's he even guilty of? But if I don't, how will the people respond? Look at this in verse 12. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king is against Caesar. And now the chess game is on, right? I mean, the crowds have a really good point. Maybe Jesus did break the law. If he claimed to be a monarch, I mean, as a Roman governor, Pilate can't stand for that. That's insurrection. So Pilate brings Jesus in front of the crew, sets him on this judgment seat. And as Roman governor, Pilate holds court. It was called the stone pavement, Gabbatha. And now in this public arena, Pilate walks it out. He tells the people, look at your king. Here he is. The crowd wasn't having it, though. They screamed back, no, away with this man. So Pilate makes a counter move on the chessboard. He says, well, shall I crucify your king? He puts everybody in the crowd in check. This is your call. You're the jury. But their response is astonishing. Right, here comes checkmate. What they said next, you'd never see coming. They said, we have no king but Caesar. Now think about that. 
the Jewish leaders hated Rome. They hated Caesar. Caesar was the occupation, right? But now with Pilate standing right in front of them, they declare allegiance not to Jesus, but to Caesar. Who would have thought? Jesus can't be our king. Caesar is king. And now the governor has no choice but to hand Jesus over to be crucified. You know, when you think about your emotions, our, our feelings are a powerful thing, right? They, they have us an ability, a unique ability to move us in places we never maybe even intended to go one way or the other. Pilate's terrified. That's the emoticon for the day. And it's not just that he's fearful, it's who he's fearful of. In Greek, John says he's phobeo. That's where we get the word phobia, to be in this state of, of great distress. Pilate knows this is a high stakes game. If he sets Jesus free, he's looking at an all-out revolt. But if he condemns him, what if Jesus is who he says he is? Look at this one more time with me. Look at this in verse 6. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him. I find no guilt. The Jews answered, we have a law. And according to that law, he ought to die because he's made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. You know, when it comes to our emotions, of all the emotions we feel, I would say fear is one of the strongest forces on this planet. It's been said fear cuts deeper than swords. Aristotle once said it like this. He said, only he who has overcome his fears can truly be free. So let's talk about fear for a minute. Think about what is it that, that you're afraid of? You know, fear is this threshold that often holds us back. It's this ceiling that, that keeps us held down. When we really stop to consider what happened to Jesus, this entire chapter is a fear-inducing set of events. Last week, it was Peter, you'll remember, who succumbed to that emotion. The officials had gathered around to arrest Jesus in the garden, and Peter couldn't help himself. It was war. He pulled out the sword. The minute Jesus told him to put it back, he was already slipping into his denial of who he was. But now we open up to this final trial, and it's almost as if Pilate, powerful as he is, is somehow being pulled by the same thread. He's terrified. Really, what do we do with that emotion? What, what do we do with our fears? I ask that because if we're honest, like we live in fear, anxiety producing times, right? And it seems to me there's only two kinds of fear in this world. There are our phobia fears, that which we feel in our flesh, Pilate's fear, Peter's fear, that which keeps us up at night, fight or flight kind of fear. Or there is a healthy fear of the Lord. Maybe Jesus is who he says he is. Maybe he really is God. Maybe he actually is king. This isn't a phobia. This, this would lead you more to a, a reverence, a, a godly fear, a worshipful fear. You know, I think of Isaiah in that famous moment where he has this vision of God's glory, right? And he falls to the ground. And what does he say? He says, woe is me for I am ruined for I am among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the king. Which fear leads you? Psalm 110 or 111.10 says it like this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and all who practice it have good understanding. His praise endures forever. Proverbs 14.27 says, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. But here's the point. No matter how you package it, right, we all know what it is to live with phobia, right? Fears in our flesh that hinder us in our faith. Just think about how fear plays out in this life. Fear is what causes us to fist fight in school board meetings. Fear is what leads us to mental despair and depression. 
Fear is what drives our economy and our stock markets up and down. Fear is that feeling we have when we read the headlines and we wonder, God, where are you? Fear is a powerful, immeasurable phenomenon, right? Of all the emotions that we feel, fear is a commanding driver of this life. Really think about this. What is it that you fear? See, Pontius Pilate, he can hear the roar of the crowd and we're, we're told he's overcome. He's not just concerned, he was even more afraid. He knew whatever decision he made would carry grave consequences. What is it about fear? This summer, my daughter Taylor had a, a goal to learn how to ride her bike. And we've been at it like hard all summer, right? And once you learn how to ride a bike, like it just seems like an easy concept. It's almost frustrating. It's like, just get on it and paddle, right? You know, the main roadblock in getting probably any child, but especially Taylor to ride her bike well, it's fear. It's amazing to me to watch how this plays out in the game, right? Like if we can get Taylor distracted enough to forget about falling off her bike for just a few seconds, she's good to go. But the minute she thinks about crashing her bike, she hits the brakes becomes this self-fulfilling prophecy. The faster she goes, the more she has to battle fear of up ahead. The problem with that though, is you can't ride a bike slow. You will wobble and you will fall over every time. The only way to truly ride your bike is to push through that turbulence and that fear until you hit the stable speed. Look with me at how quickly Pilate gives up into fear. Look at this. This is how Matthew's gospel explains it. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I'm innocent of this man's blood. This is on you. Is that true? When you think about Pontius Pilate, like it sounded good, but Pilate still goes down in history as the one who handed Jesus over to die, right? The Apostles' Creed says, and Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and was buried. Pilate could have chosen reverent fear, right? A, a faith-filled life for the, the king that was sitting before him like Isaiah, but instead he gives to the phobia, the cry of the crowd. Crucify him, crucify him, away with him. Let me just ask, when you think about your emotions, how does fear hold you back in this life? What is it that, that causes you to become increasingly afraid? Because in the end, I, I really think that's true. We only fear one of two things. We either fear the Lord or we fear anything and everything else. There's a story about a German priest named Martin Nolimer. And at the early rise of Hitler's power, Martin was this active pastor in his hometown. In his memoirs, he writes about the first time he met Hitler in 1933. He stood in the back of this packed room filled with these enthusiastic followers and he was listening to the words of the Fuhrer. When he got home, his wife could tell he was troubled and she asked him, she said, what was the takeaway? What did you learn? In his memoirs, he documented it. He said, I learned Hitler is a terribly frightened human being. Maybe we just quote the late King David. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? As we wrap up this morning, I want us to notice not only where fear plagues the final chapters of Jesus' life, but notice where the antidote to the phobia lies. If you begin all the way back in the Garden of Gethsemane, just look with me where Jesus extinguishes fear. First, the mob approaches, right? Torches, lanterns, and weapons. And they ask, well, where is Jesus? Christ, knowing that they're here to execute him, says, here I am. 
Then as Peter draws his sword and, and is ready to fight, fear is rampant in the moment, Jesus plays counselor. He tells Peter, put it down. Am I not supposed to drink this cup that the Father has given me? And then soon, Jesus is now being interrogated by Pilate, right? He's been beat, mocked, crowned of thorns, the whole thing. But Pilate gives him an out. He says, Jesus, just tell me where you're from. And Jesus, in that moment, could have written his ticket to freedom, but instead he meets him with silence. And then the greatest authority in all of Judea is told by Jesus, the only reason you have power here is because my father gave it to you. Then Jesus takes up his cross, drinks one last sip of the sour wine, ministers the men on his right and left, says one last farewell to his mother, and declares his ministry finished. Not once will you find that Jesus moved in fear. Not once did he succumb to the phobia even of his own suffering and death. That's the God we follow. Listen to how Isaiah describes it, Isaiah 53, 5 to 6. But he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us what? Peace. You know, I rarely end a sermon with a quote, but this one's so good. I could, we could just sit with this all week. Look at this from Oswald Chambers. He said, it is the most natural thing in the world to be scared. And the clearest evidence that God's grace is at work in our heart is when we do not get into panics. The remarkable thing about fearing God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. Here's our prayer this week. Whom shall we fear? Pray with me. God, we live in anxious times and we are a, often a scattered people. Lord, we can become distracted by the, the wind and the waves right in front of us and we can forget that your sovereign hand is over all of us. Lord, that there are no surprises. Lord, that this day is but uh, countless days to you. Our worries are but millions and billions of worries to you. God, you see it all. You are through it all. You, you have your hand over it all. So Lord, we just pray this morning, would you take whatever that fear is in our heads, whatever, whatever it is that's holding us back to truly living in freedom for you. And Lord, just help us to leave it here. To leave it at the foot of the cross where it belongs. God, we thank you that, that we follow a savior who moved even in the midst of terrifying, fearful situations all the way to the point of death and death on a cross for us. Lord, we ask this week, help us to be a people of faith and not phobia. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen.